This is one church where you don't have to say if you have a Bible. Matthew 22, 15 until the end. This is very much um, the result of a lot of weeks and hours of thought, and it's still only half formed. It was going to be unformed because I deleted the whole thing just as I got into bed last night, and it was only Shirley who found it. Um, Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they may entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their, their t- disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto, unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that the myriad of ideas and thoughts which come out of this passage will come into some order. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This idea of Caesar, what is Caesar's and what is God's, is very much in my mind at the current time, being in the NHS and all the edicts which are are coming in and, and the threats of seismic changes personally and also within within practice personally again and and uh, and generally as well this is an amazing passage is it not because on one side you had the Herodians and the Pharisees and if he had said you need to pay Caesar then it's capitulating to Rome and if you say no you don't pay it then you're in violation of the governors of the land it's a no-win situation but Jesus spoke that beautiful sense of mediation and truth in that situation and walked away there was nothing that could be said it was perfect and how we wish we could be like that walking circumspectly in the world that is temporal but rendering unto God that which is God's to prevent hypocrisy and to prevent being pressed down by, by the situation. Jesus' reply to them, I think I would subscribe to, we had a little debate at home about it, but I think there is a dual citizenship when you're material and living on the earth and temporal. You have the citizenship of our physical existence. The duties were to incumbent upon us but we also have the citizenship of heaven as well we're responsible are we not to the to the government for our taxes our council tax our tax of virtually everything else it would seem and it's right and proper to pay them 
maybe reluctantly, but if it's the tax, it's the tax and it must be paid. And the laws are there to obey, are they not? Because they're the laws of the land in which we live. This is biblical. We are to obey and financially support the government that is upon us, not to speak evil of it, to pray for it, to support it. We don't want to overthrow the government. We're to pray for those in authority. And I can hear a few of you arguing in your mind, no, I can't subscribe to that. It's true, it's true. But as a citizen of heaven, however, we're responsible to God. And if there's a conflict between the two, the first loyalty is to God. Peter, 1 Peter 2.13 states, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to kings as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Is that not the rounded scope of a Christian, both in temporal and eternal times? So here we have a clear demarcation of our roles. And frankly, friends, there's not a plea of religion I see that can hold against the obedience to lawful authority. Paul says in Romans 13:7, Render to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. If we're citizens, if we have a citizenship, sorry, no. Pierre, come and have a seat in the front, perhaps. So we have a legitimate rule upon us. We have a legitimate currency. And when we think of Caesar's penny, Caesar's head, his visage was stamped upon it. It told you there the very currency was held under the authority of Rome, under, under the protectorate of Caesar. And remember that God uses enemies, tribes, and lands to bless, but also to judge. And one wonders if Israel had been obedient to God, they would not be under the protectorate of Rome in the first instance. So one has to be sensitive to that. This is how it is. We have the governments upon us whom we deserve. And we have no right to protest or refuse or to critique the use of our taxes because they're in authority in this land. This is a difficult one 
because we don't live in a theocracy. If we lived in a theocracy like Judaism or Islam, for instance, you would have an Islamic health, Islamic law, Islamic police, Islamic everything, Islamic education. Everything would come under Islam. But the interesting thing is, under our Christian God, there is freedom. But with freedom, there are threats, blessings, responsibilities as well. And it makes you more vulnerable. And one sees that that stems back all the way to the garden, of course, because there was choice. Historically in this country, the government has been built and subscribed mainly to a Judeo-Christian heritage. I don't want to say anything more than that, in a sense, because it's so amorphous and so uh, blurred. But you can still see in, in the laws and the culture of this country and the, and the Christianized West that sense of the legacy of Christianity that has sort of underpinned the development of our legislature, judiciary, education, general respect as well. This isn't the case in the theocracy. One sees the universal declaration of human rights coming in with the rise of fascism and communism, where you saw the subsuming of the individual to the totalitarianism of a state, where the individual was a member of the state for the greater good. That is very much contrary to a Christian ideal. And that, in a sense, was a, a, a flavor, I think, of a, a, um, uh, a pushback against that sense of centralization. When we look back at this country, where do we have a Caesar in this country? Well, we have, as I say, a heritage which is crafted on Christian principles on the whole. But things began to change. And I think if you push back, it's open to many arguments here and views, but I would sort of pick the mid-1800s as a time where you began to see a seismic change. In 1867, the Secular Society had a contract where they were booking a hall to contest the teachings of Christ, and that was banned because it was against the cultural heritage of the country. That was 1867. Well, you certainly wouldn't get a, you'd get a contract to have that meeting, I think, now, not banned. But from then, friends, you begin to see an erosion of the Christian heritage of this country and the testimony throughout all the pillars of the institutions, the schools, healthcare, judiciary, police, military, Everything begin and politics, of course, as well. Certainly, first and foremost, I would say, in politics. And when one gets to the 1960s, you get a tearing down of virtually everything is just crumbling in front of you. You have the Abortion Act in 1968. You have the legalization of suicide in 1961. Gambling, obscenity, divorce, homosexuality being increasingly accepted. Sunday recreation, the doing away of laws. Do you remember as a child, well, for some of us as a child, you go into town aching to spend some pocket money on a Sunday. It was not going to happen, was it? 
I think it was Boots who only stood against it. And then, of course, the common law of blasphemy was eliminated in 2008. In a sense, against the background of liberal views and licentiousness of the 1960s, that, in a sense, is the end result, isn't it? We will not have it so. We will not have it so. And thinking about that, when a couple of Christians were hoping to adopt a baby, it was turned down because they refused not to um, uh, advocate or teach homosexuality as a lifestyle. And the judge referred to his judicial oath as to why it was turned down because he had to do the right to all manner of people after the laws and usages of this realm, without fear or favor, affection or ill will. And you can't include Christianity in it. What am I saying there? I'm saying that he's stating that there has to be advocacy to believe whatever you want, but the law does not have to uphold what you believe. And that's a really important point, isn't it? You have the right to believe what you want, but they're not going to subscribe what you believe. That is not protected. So once you do away with the the essence of the Christian faith, the lid's off, isn't it? Completely. And we live now, as a result of this policy, in a multi-faith, pluralist society where other voices are rising up and the Christian voice is going down. Why is that happening? Because we have a philosophy in this country that gives the preserve of everyone to have their own right, which is a good thing in and of itself. But when it's spiritualized by the enemy, it allows every voice that is antichrist to rise up. And where is the voice of the church to argue against that. When it's silent, every other voice just moves in. Nature abhors a vacuum, never more so than in this situation. I'm guessing, I'm moving on, but I just wanted to set the whole scene. A secular judge must be wary, and I'm aware there are lawyers in the royal home here, so I have to be careful. A secular judge must be wary of straying across the well-recognized divide between church and state. But isn't that changing now? The church has been subsumed by the state. You need to shut your doors. Fine, we will shut the doors. And it's interesting that we see in Jesus a desire not to offend the status quo either in many ways. I'm always interested by the passage in Matthew 17:27 about the tribute money, asking if, if the king receives um, tribute from sons or strangers. And he says, strangers, the sons are free. Notwithstanding, he says, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, take that, and give it unto them for me and thee. He didn't have to do that, but there's a lesson in there that he was rendering the dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to who custom. 
there's a spiritual truth not to pay when you are the son of God. Nevertheless, there's a desire not to offend. Being subjects of Caesar, it was their duty in Roman times to submit to Caesar's demands and pay the taxes. And Christ didn't really take either side on the controversy of that. Well, that's on one side, isn't it? Rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, the law of the land that has, to, that has been established, either through election or through domination and aggression. But the point, too, is render unto God the things that are God's. Well, when we have a look at the coin, the face on the coin is Caesar. But when we look at ourselves made in the image of God, we see God, do we not? We are his handiwork. The things of God are ourselves, our bodies, our faculties, our skills, our talents, our money, that which we have been given to steward effectively. All of these things are to give back to God because they're his. Our will, most importantly, is his to do with what he likes, to surrender unto God. Because we're made in his image, Genesis 1. And God said, let us make man in our image. And Paul picks up on that in Colossians, because we have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. We are made in the image of Christ. The kingdom of God is not of this world. But I, I argue that we can be a true citizen of heaven and yet quietly submit to the civil rule of a foreign potentate in our land. But I think it takes nuance and it takes effort and it takes to use our brains and our wisdom mediated by the spirit of the living God to enable us to do that. Because when you look at Paul in Romans 7, when you do it by your own will, it's doomed to failure. Doomed. We need the spirit of, of the living God indwelling us to motivate and use us for his purposes. And, when we, and this can be done. Remember the last year, 27 Scottish ministers out of over 3,000 decided to contest that the Scottish government had gone too far, and they won. I mean, you think of John MacArthur. He won as well. He's just got $800,000, I think, hasn't he? He contested California on the law of the land and said this contravenes, and they won. So there are opportunities to use the very system of freedom to one's own advantage, whether you're Christian or not. So why do you then, friends, when you see churches that have just shut up and gone, and some are still shut, how can this be? It means you've given everything to Caesar, everything. You've given your birthright. Well, there are two, and, and then you think of, you think of Paul. Paul appealed to Caesar, didn't he? He used the law and the legitimacy of his birthright as a Roman citizen. 
So that which was oppressing the land was the very thing that legitimized him, that he could use to his advantage, and God used as well. There are two ways it can go. This can lead to a stridency, a militancy, and a real entrenchment on one side, where you say, I will never render unto Caesar. It's all of God. And it can make you hard, hard and vociferous and strident. And I find it quite distasteful, actually. Or on the other side, it can give you boldness and a quiet, gentle authority. And I come back to 1 Corinthians 16, which I'm so struck by, where Paul commands us in verse 13 and 14 to watch, in other words, to look at what is coming down the line. Watch. Watch inwardly at our weaknesses, our sinfulness, but watch outwardly as well, like a watchman on the tower. Watch ye. Stand fast in the face. Faith. Know on which... We have based our foundation on the rock of Christ. Quit you like men. That's man with a capital M. Quit you like men and be strong or valorous. And then verse 14, which is the crucial point, which I think a lot of people miss out when they're standing bold and strong. Let all your things be done with charity, with love. Because without love, it's just strident noise, isn't it? And it's not appealing to anyone. And it it, it doesn't attract anything. It doesn't tell, tell of the goodness of Christ. And when we do that, we see the wonderful testimony in Acts 5. 25, just to 29. Thinking when Peter and John and the apostles who were put in prison, the angel releases them. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men who you, who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then when the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did, we, did not we straightly command you, that ye should not teach in, in this name, the name of Jesus. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Again, it was surely pointed this out the other evening. It's a really good point. These are the very same people who crucified Christ, aren't they? takes a lot of courage to go against them and then find yourself in the dock exactly in the same situation. What are you to expect? The same? The courts of man had crossed over into the courts of God at this point, and they were citizens of heaven first and foremost at this. But it wasn't done in anger, was it? It was just a simple statement. Who should we then? It was a reply with a question even which we often see our Lord telling, answer a situa- a sticky situation with a question, as in who, who's on the, on the coin. This was because they had unction and they had the anointing of the Holy Spirit to go out, not in their own strength. This is something, you, imagine if you've been in prison to go out and just do it exactly again. 
It takes a lot of courage, that. And I'm always reminded in 1 John 1, here's this sort of crying witness of, a, of someone who's been in the presence of Christ, who knows him for who he is, and this sense of urgency. That which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. There's a Latin motto, tutum et verum, what is true is right. It's great, isn't it? You can also interpret verum as safety. What is truth is safety. Doesn't that tell you at the person of Christ? Christ is truth and he is safety. I am the way, the truth and the life. When we have the truth, we are safe and we are right. It's discerning what is true is the challenge. We have to diagnose the situation well, because if we, if we get it too early, if we miscalculate, we throw ourselves on a sword, and there wasn't any need to, then it's rather a pointless action. But if we leave it too late, we've missed the opportunity, and it happens to us, and we have no testimony. How does one get the sweet spot? Well, that is discernment, isn't it? And it's walking circumspectly. And just a few examples, who I think got it right. The Hebrew midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh when told to kill the male babies. No, they didn't. Daniel, refusing to eat the king's meat and praise, even when prayer to God is prohibited. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow down to a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And Paul, of course, jailing, being jailed at various times for preaching in violation of Rome's law. But he needed to be in jail for how God would use him. These are people who found it right and the testimony is strong. But always in love and never in contention. And what's the end result of that? Well, Acts 17.6, I think, is, is, is a wonderful summation of it. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Just a bunch of men and disciples. These are the blessed, are the meek, are they not? And yet they turn the world upside down, not with stridency or militancy or discord, but with love and truth, because it's right. Jesus is a man who turned the world upside down in love. Are we rendering to God our hearts and lives as carefully as we are in paying our taxes and serving the state? 31st of January come, everyone is twitched, got to get the tax in or £100 bill. But do we serve God in the same way? It's not easy because you look, our Savior served under Pontius Pilate, a horrendous man. Paul under Nero, a horrendous man. You don't have to be under a benign state. There's nothing new about a dysfunctional state. Our brothers and sisters in, in China, Russia, or Iran will testify to that. Because of time, I'm going to move on a bit. We need to give him our will. 
our mind controls our body and our will controls our mind. As I spoke about with Paul. I just want to run through a few things which are exercising me because if they're exercising me, they're probably exercising you too. And I'm trying to see what the head on the coin of these issues are because every day is a, is a, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time to be alive, isn't it? It really is. It's never a dull day. Never a dull day. But very demanding because we have to make decisions which potentially have huge ramifications for each of us and our family and friends. And, and we have to pick the battles to fight and the, the battles to not to fight, the battles to put down. But as I, at the beginning, I, I, I put all that in because it's important for us to see, and I, I, I'm increasingly, I, hate, I did history A-level and I loathed every second of it. Got C. <laughs> but I really hated it. But now I can see the importance of, of history. It is crucial to understand. When I was enjoying glam rock and punk in the 70s and everything, you look at the Jimmy Savills and you look at what was happening with Kinsey and everything else and the sexual licentiousness of the 60s and all that was happening bubbling under the surface and yet everyone is blind to it on the surface. They're being fed an absolute lie and never more so than what's happening now under the fake morality of Facebook, the fake morality of, of all the media giants. So it's critical to look because if we don't, we're going to miscalculate on where to fall. We have the mind of Christ if we allow him to exercise that. And that will transform the perspective that we see on the, on the topography that is around us. Because the landscape is changing every day. Maybe... A Christian in Iran, it's quite a binary situation. You believe or you don't believe. The consequences are so obvious in between those two extremes. But where we're in this society, where you can believe anything you want, people may not agree and it may get you into trouble, but you can. How do we divide right from wrong unless we filter it through the word of God? For me, the, the following issues, and, and, and I'm recounting them because I want to, it, it has a purpose, but physician-assisted suicide is now being debated, which is another form of treatment for the elderly. Forgive me, that's what people are citing it as. It's murder, plain and simple. It's murder in another guise. I did a course on uh, medical ethics the other day, and it was fascinating talking about the slippery slope of, of ethics, where you start, you, you, you do one thing, and you get a cascading of effects. And I just thought, the garden, that's where it all began. Once that happened, we started the cascading effects down to revelation. And we're all part of that. When a child goes down a chute, the speed at which it goes down will be proportionate to the friction of filth on its genes, if you follow that. 
There has to be checks and balances to stop that slide. But the speed at which we're going down can only be checked by the spirit of the living God manifest in each Christian. That's the checks and balance that avoids us shooting off the end of the chute. God will, God ultimately is the check and balance because it will be in his time. But because we are dual, we are temporal and material, we nevertheless have to mediate how we live in this time. Physician-assisted suicide, full-term abortions, as advocated by the College of Midwives. It's just impossible to believe, isn't it? We read a fascinating, it shows what we get up to in the evenings, um, the Ministry of Defense new thing, Human Augmentation, the dawn of a new paradigm. I don't know if any of you have read that. It's, it's a read worth having. It's a consultation document. It's not policy. There's nothing about if or why. It's, all, it's just how and when. I'll read you a couple of quotes. And these are things you've got to think about. Elon Musk said, if you don't think about AI, it'll consume you within five years. The example he cited was it takes a child up to a year to learn how to walk, but a self-programming robot can learn how to walk in under half an hour. Human augmentation, not if or why, but how and when. The wealthy are expected to be early adopters of human augmentation, and they could use their acquired superior abilities to entrench their status. In time, this will lead to an elite overclass that could become genetically distinct from the rest of humanity and leave an unaugmented underclass as relatively disadvantaged as the illiterate are in today's society. Another quote, individually driven efforts to push the ethical and technical limits of human augmentation in this way could lead to hyper-competition within societies and spawn a black market trade in human augmentation with the attendant safety and security issues. If others have entered that risk, then what is the cost of non-compliance? That's my line at the end. Because everyone is talking about it, it's coming. There's no, there's no debate about this. It is coming. Human organizationism, transhumanism. But in the same way, when the petrol stations are out of fuel and you're a bit low, you think, well, I better go and get something. And I fell straight into the trap. I went and filled up and then I came back and I looked at the other car and I said, sure, I'll go and fill up the other one. Because if, if we don't, someone else is going to. If human augmentation is coming for alien states and other countries, you're almost going to have to go alongside to compete in a secular world. And then as Christians, how do you combat that? And that, in a sense, is, is, the, is, 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 is the biggest thing I see on the horizon You saw that in Germany in the 30s, didn't we, with anti-Semitism. Just a small nod, a small thing for your safety. Wear a badge, policeman outside your shop. What are the fences for? Just to keep you safe. Crystal that comes, death camps follow. It always starts with a nudge. Journal of Applied Psychology in 2015 
I, re I repeat, because individuals more readily justify small indiscretions as opposed to major ethical ones. Moral disengagement is likely to occur when unethical behavior develops gradually over time rather than abruptly. And that's how the church has got its, itself into the state it is. It didn't fall off the cliff overnight. It was a gradual, as Shirley says, entropy and atrophy. Friends, we can't afford to be in that way. We have to get our eyes open in this way. We have to have our eyes open. Shake off the slumber. No more folding of the hands. A little slumber. I read the other day about gene editing has the ability to harness the genetic resources that nature has provided. It is a tool that will help us in order to tackle some of the biggest challenges that we face around food security, climate change, and biodiversity loss. Well, within a week, we've got folic acid in bread. I'm not planning on pregnancy, so I don't see why I have to have folic acid in my bread. You can get it in a tablet form. And fluoride to drink. Well, it's in toothpaste. Why take my freedom away for that? Okay, it's not a big issue, but I think it is a big issue, actually, to actually think and see what decisions are being made on our behalf without any sense of recourse to debate or evidence, or choice. Well, it, I was speaking to an organic farmer. I'm drifting a bit here, because I said it's a, it's a, I, I could speak all day, but I'm very conscious of it. I'm going to end very shortly. I was speaking to an organic farmer, and they said that there is no such thing as organic food. No such thing as organic food. They have an organic farm near us out in the Fens in Cambridgeshire. Because of all the pesticides that are blown around in the winds and fertilizers and weak hills and nitrogens and everything else that is sprayed about, it goes onto organic land. It has to. It has to. If you genetically engineer a crop, are you really going to contain that within the boundaries of the field? No, you're not. And same with genetic modified animals, genetic modified medications as well. You're putting in manufactured proteins and, uh, and structures into organisms in farming, and you are creating a new species. It's not a species... I'm getting into detail here. But I think you, are, you understand this. Well, a pig is still a pig, a pig, a pig. But at the end of the day, it's being corrupted in a small way, and our God will not tolerate mixture. Look what happened with the flood. Look what happened with the flood. Flies, you probably, I don't know if you heard about this in South Africa, the University in Queensland also have done a study saying it, you, half a hectare of breeding black soldier flies and taking the protein out of them is the same as 1,200 acres of cattle or 52 acres of soybean. So let's eat flies. Is that really what we're expected to do as Christians or as humans? I don't believe that that's God's intention. I can't prove it, but there's something that tells me that's a retrograde step. This is a, a, a first creeping, but now it's full flight, isn't it? But behind all this, who is the Lord of the flies, I ask? 
Oh, a whole section on the World Economic Forum. I haven't got time for that. Francis Schaeffer, I advise you, read his books. Outstanding Christian philosopher of the, of the last century. Christian Manifesto, a, a fantastic book. He writes, What we must understand is that the two world views, Christianity, the absolutism of God and his laws, humanism, the intelligence and ingenuity and creativity of man. The two world views really do bring forth with inevitable certainty not only personal differences, but total differences in regard to society, government, and law. There is no way to mix these two world views. This is so because humanists, having no God, must put something at the center. That's a stunning line, isn't it? And inevitably, it is society, government, or the state. If man is not made in the image of God, nothing then stands in the way of inhumanity. There is no good reason why mankind should, should be perceived as special. Human life is cheapened. We can see this in many of the issues being debated in our society today. Abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, the increasing child abuse and violence of all kinds, pornography, the routine torture of political prisoners, the crime explosion and random violence which surrounds us. He wrote that in, I think, 1950-something. We've moved on a long way in 70 years. His books are wonderful. I advise them. Friends, what's at the back of this as I close? There is only one thing at the back of that, of this, and it's the prince of this world. All these issues are weaponized by Satan to create a tearing down of the Christian church. That is the beginning and end of this. Do not get caught up on vaccines. Do not get caught up on the policies of government. Even the things I've said about, I'm getting quite exercised on some of them, and I realize it's pulling me away. And we can get very issue-minded, and that is a distraction. Because if we're going to truly see the coin of Caesar or God's law upon ourselves, we need to be clear that there is a division there is no exchange rate on these two currencies, I can assure you of that. And so we mustn't get distracted by the policies. But they're emotionally quite engaging, aren't they? I am outraged again today by the next thing. And that spawns all the conversations and the conspiracies and the YouTubes and everything else. Friends, fine but keep it in perspective. This is much more serious than single-issue politics. This is about our walk as Christians in this world to make heaven at the end of it because the enemy has, has is, as my mother said before she died, I think Satan is running amok. That's very true in every, in every avenue. Should we be surprised? No, because we live in a post-Christian, secular, pluralist country. It is what it is. This is Caesar on almost everything. So we have to engage with that to allow us to function. But let's lift our eyes unto the hills from whence comes our help and remember that we are sons of the living God, that we are dead and we are hid with Christ 
in God. Isn't that a great Russian doll sort of appearance of just being wrapped and included? And We're not even on the outside anymore. We're in, we're hid with him in that secret place. So let's not get too distracted by all the issues. This is an issue of God and Satan. We know the outcome. We know the outcome. And we should be a good cheer, for he has overcome the world. Amen.